If you're just joining us, we're in Romans chapters 9 through 11 this month into February, making, making our way through Romans in sections. So what we do is so we've broken the big book of Romans into five sections, and between each section, we sort of try to apply the doctrine that we find in these first 11 chapters. So we're at the, the end of the doctrinal section of uh, Romans, what's also often called the indicative, where we're told what God has done for us. And then in chapter 12, there's a pivot, and that's the imperative. Now, what we do in response to what God has done for us in view of all these mercies. And we're talking in Romans 9 through 11 about why the doctrine of mercy matters. Now, uh, someone reminded me last Sunday, and I, I got a laugh out of it, that, you know, some preachers feel enough ambivalence about this particular section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, that they skip it uh, or otherwise avoid it. And while I don't have that ambivalence, I know why uh, some of my uh, compadres do. Uh, there is the question of relevancy for a largely Gentile context such as is our context. We love Romans chapters 6 through 8. That seems to speak so directly to us. I mean, that portion of our Bible is tear-stained and underlined and highlighted and notes out in the margins. But you come to Romans 9 through 11, and we don't feel quite the, the same way. And, and we're thankful for this text, but because the emphasis is so much on ethnic Israel, these chapters are, are precious to believing Jews in, in Jesus as Messiah because it speaks to, to, to God's uh, undying mercy uh, on, on uh, those that he uh, originated. The gospel DNA, as we talked about it last week, is, is Jewish but also, the reason why a lot of teachers, preachers, people in the pews find some head-scratching goes on in Romans 9 through 11, uh, it seems to treat any question that we would raise about the selective purposes of God as a bad question. I mean, as Pat read that, verse 19 in particular sort of sets this prickly tone, and, and he reads on through there, and you think, well, you know, why, why does it seem to be in this sort of mood? Uh, most of us know this is the doctrine of election. We were introduced to this doctrine in uh, chapter 9 here, verses 1 through 18. Last week, we are taking this in, in bigger segments, and, and the doctrine of election shows up in other places in Romans. But God's elective purposes are, simply put, about his selection of all those he appoints to eternal life. And eternal life is, is about life beyond the reach of death. We've talked about this as we've gone through Romans. Now, when you mention election, you're mentioning something that for a lot of people is, is controversial. It really not, need not be, but given some of the history of interpretation and how people have differed over this question... You've got some, uh, some, some issues, some relational issues that have, have built up over time when people talk about this. Generally considered, all Christians agree that salvation is God's initiative. That's not the debate. The debate is not over whether uh, salvation of people in, in Jesus Christ generates with God. All Christians agree that it does. It's God's idea. It's God's purposes and plans. Where Christians differ is how to understand uh, our believing in light of, of God's choosing, God's orchestration of this great unfolding of, of salvation the world over. 
And the question uh, usually sort of revolves around, it gets very nuanced, and there's books, endless, written on this, but is our believing, here's where Christians differ, is our believing in God through the Lord Jesus, is this of our own free will, unscripted, unprompted by him, whosoever will may come, the verse that often gets proof texted, or is our will not neutral but fallen such that God has to work to bring us to belief and and even to give us the faith to believe? Interestingly, later, if you want to look at at other New Testament places on this particular question, John chapter 6 is a great place to look at. Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6 is a both and. Because he says in John chapter 6, whoever wants to come may come. But then he says just a few verses down from there, no one comes unless the Father draws him. And that word for draw means to compel by, by irresistible superiority. It's a, it's a word that overcomes resistance. But still, we look at this passage, verses 19 to 29, that Pat read for us, and, and we think, well, why, does the, why is the tone of this passage, get off my lawn, you kids? I mean, doesn't it feel that way? Verse 19 You will say to me then, as he makes this whole argument for why there's been a a hardening that used to take place with Israel's enemies, and now Paul says, as a Jew, writing to the Jewish Christian contingency who's wondering about their brothers and sisters ethnically, are, are they going to get in on this? And Paul says, they're going to, but for now there's been this partial hardening. He'll talk about this more in chapter 11. He'll use the analogy of an olive tree and that Gentiles have been grafted in to what is uh, the gospel DNA that's Jewish. The, the Savior of all comes through Abraham's ethnic line, through Isaac and Jacob. And, and this is an important argument to Paul. And you know, as we read the first few, chap- uh, first few verses in chapter 9, the, the grieving that Paul feels for his people. Uh, why does still the tone of this feel so prickly? Because then he gets to verse 19 and he says, You will say to me then... He anticipates the objection. Well, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? I mean, if God is orchestrating everything according to his sovereign purposes in salvation, whom he redeems, whom he passes over, uh, then, you know, what's going on here? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Get off my lawn, you kids. And when someone does this to you, what happens to us in verse 20? The question is stopped. It's really kind of strong-armed is is the feel you get from this. When someone strong-arms your question, don't you feel a little offended? This has a week sort of go, well, hey, I was just asking. (laughs) I just wondered. Uh, You bit my hand. And, And this is because we have a tendency to think of our questions as neutral. We tend to put our questions in the very best possible light. And, and particularly if there's, if there's questions about God and, and doctrines, well, well we, we just we think that any question we ask along those lines is just faith-seeking understanding. But even our inquiries into theological matters are not immune from sin. You know, the first question recorded in Scripture, did God really say? Our questions can convey hostilities we're not even aware of. Let me, let me give you an example. Let's say you and I are having a discussion about dogs. That's a favorite topic for Americans. We love talking about our dogs because they love us unconditionally. 
like no one else does. I love the greeting that I get every evening when I come home and my two dogs come running over to see me. You tell me about your dog and I tell you about mine and and you ask, well, what, what kind of dog is, is your dog? And I say, well, I, I have a pit bull. And this look comes over your face. Thank you for those of you that are chuckling. And you, uh, your head tilts a bit and you say, well, really? You have a pit bull? I mean, I thought pastors kind of had little toy dogs and, and stuff. I didn't think you were part of that group. And I explain why we have Abel, our pit bull, and uh, his brother was Cain, yes, from that litter. And and I, I go on to tell you what a sweetheart he is as pit bulls go. He's a 65-pound lap dog. I sit down in my chair to read. He whines to jump in my lap. And he does. I let a 65-pound dog snuggle into the chair with me as much as one can snuggle with a pit bull. And you nod as you hear that. And, and you say, but, okay, but don't you have a baby crawling around your house right now? We do. Our grandson lives with us. Haven't you heard that some pit bulls turn on their owners? I mean, don't you watch the local news? No, actually, I don't. Uh, aren't you afraid of that happening? Now, I'm reading your questions. And so if we're having a discussion, I might say to you in response, you know, I'm, I'm sort of getting the feel that you're not crazy about my dog. And then you say, oh, no, I'm just asking you questions. Well, I know from your questions you think I'm crazy to have a pit bull. But let me tell you something. When kids are around, it's the schnoodle that we have to watch. That's the other dog. And he's the one that uh, is pretty grouchy and snaps at children. Often we try to project neutrality with our questions. You know, I, I, no judgment here. I, I'm just asking. But questions aren't always neutral. I'll give you another example. This one I love. One of my seminary, well, I love the other one because that's about Abel and I love him. One of my seminary professors told about uh, once getting interviewed for jury duty. And this is way back. I don't know if they've changed. I've not been called in a while. So maybe they do this differently. But at, at that time, uh, the defense attorney who was going to um, uh, argue the, the case across from the prosecutor, the defense attorney is giving, is vetting the potential jurors. And my Hebrew professor... Dallas is, uh, is singled out, and the defense attorney notes on his uh, clipboard that, that my professor is a teacher at a seminary, a Bible school, and here's what the defense attorney says to my professor. Doctor, given your profession, do you feel you can be objective in handling the facts of this case? And my professor, without missing a beat, answered, you mean unlike a defense attorney? Uh, no offense, defense attorneys, if you're in the room, that's, I'm, I'm the messenger, don't shoot the messenger, but that may be the all-time best way of disqualifying oneself for jury pool duty I've ever heard. The questions here in verse 19, the questions, it's a two-part, really one question. Why does he still find fault, that is, that he is God, for who can resist God's will? In other words, looking back at verses 1 through 18, Paul is crystallizing, in essence, the argument. And he's saying, look, if I'm making the case that though I hate that this is the case, as, as an ethnic Jew, Paul writing, look again at the very beginning of chapter 9 for the emotion. If God has sovereignly hardened the heart of not all but most Jews for a time, 
Remember, we saw last week in verses 1 through 18, and we'll see again the reason why this partial hardening takes place through history is the mercies of God in Christ coming to the Gentiles. In verse 18, right above it, the last verse of last week, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And coming directly from that, now this two-part question in verse 19, which is, in other words, if God has sovereignly hardened the hearts of not all but most Jews in order to bring Gentiles in on his grace, in order to, to, to introduce us to Jesus specifically as, as the Jewish Messiah, as, the, as God in human flesh, in keeping with God's goal of his redemptive purposes to redeem Gentiles the world over. Paul says, well, then the question comes up, well, how could he blame Jews for not repenting? How are they still held responsible for unbelief if in some way God is, 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 is cast this veil over their eyes as he talks about it in his Corinthian letters? And the, the answer that Paul gives in verse 20 when he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's not the equivalent of saying, what an absurd thing to ask. I've, I've had teachers sort of read that in, you know, how dare you even think that? This is God we're talking about, much less ask that aloud. No, instead what Paul is trying to move us toward is consistent with the whole argument of the book of Romans, and that is a position of trust in who God is within his own counsels, which will necessarily require we live with some questions unanswered. And also means that we will recognize that our questions aren't always neutral. Sin doesn't need much room to question God in such a way that it's not really faith-seeking understanding. It's more about us leaning on our own understanding. How come, God, you don't do things like I do things? How come, God, it seems like I'm more merciful than you? Boy, if you ever have that thought, you can see how pride sneaks in when we assume that God should think and do and, and be more like how we think and do and be. But I say that, and I understand that a lot of us don't like having questions like these go unanswered. And not because we can't appreciate mercy, not because we feel... We need to have everything figured out. But because it, it just seems, these questions in verse 19, it's like Paul's saying there's no possible way for these questions to ever be asked legitimately. So let's just shut them all down. And then the imagery as it goes on with the potter and the clay, that, that hardly helps. You're telling me we're just lumps of clay to God? Verse 21, some for putting flowers in and some for tossing garbage in. Is that it? Are we reading this right? What about the dignity of all people bearing the image and likeness of God? God don't make no junk and all of that kind of thing. Behind all theological questions we raise, and Paul is dealing here in this passage with theological questions that come out of the doctrine that he's laying down about why mercy matters. Behind all theological questions that we uh, deal with and raise, especially questions of magnitude like this, that, that deal with the great campaign of God to fill heaven with people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone from some, or someone from everyone. Behind all theological questions we raise are the questions behind the questions, and those are questions like, is God truly good? Is God good to me? 
and taking this one step further, is God good to those I would like to see him save? Which is the way Paul begins the chapter in chapter 9. Brothers, I wish that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for sake of my own ethnic people if it would bring them, more of them, into a, a love relationship with God through Christ. Is God truly good? Is God good to me? Is God good to those I'd like to see him save? That's the questions behind the questions. And does it even matter if I, I want this, if God, in some way, it doesn't matter to him? Why should it matter to me? That's what we're working through here. I mean, who among us, I hope, I hope no one among us uh, has never prayed for uh, someone to know and love Jesus as we do and is still praying for a friend, a family member to believe. And, and yet that person seems still hardened toward God. And staying hard-hearted toward God ongoing is an awful thought for those we love. What you've got in Romans 9 through 11 is like the, all the world's a stage to Shakespeare it and, and we're watching this play out. God is, is moving across the map and he's bringing someone from everyone to himself, many someones from, from everyone. God is generous and rich in his mercy. We talked about this a little bit last week and we'll come back to it in other messages. But we're watching everything in the front stage and there's this big curtain and behind that curtain is backstage and only God is back there. And so there are purposes and how and who and why and when that he's working out only known to him. We know he's rich in mercy, I say again, but the fundamental reality that we all have to square with as we, as we watch this play, and not just watch it, we're actually in it. The fundamental reality we all have to square with is God is against all of us in our sin. That's a hard reality. But what we believe as Christians forces us to a, a relentless engagement with reality. And the reality, what does it say back in Romans 3? All have sinned. Jews have sinned. Gentiles have sinned. One's not worse than the other. It's, it's in some ways a little different in its expression given the history of the Jewish people with God, but none of, us, none of us should be insiders with God. Not them, not us, not any of us, all together. We, we don't square with this just at the point at which we're saved by God. We square with this ongoing with God. Is God truly good? Is God truly good to me? And is God good to those whose redemption I care about and pray for? These are the questions behind the questions here. And Paul says, no one but God can answer the ultimate questions that are known only to him. And there are such a thing as ultimate questions. Only, only God can ultimately know his own purposes in salvation. And we have to leave that there. We do. As another professor of mine used to say, and I've been fond of quoting this for you through the years, a lot of you recognize the quote, three things will surprise us when we get to heaven. Who's there, who's not there, and that we are there. Only God ultimately knows his own purposes in salvation. You say, okay, I get it. And that's really not even, an, you know, breaking news. Of course, everything when you watch the news now is breaking news. What is breaking news anymore? It's like it's when it comes on the TV. Now everything that we're going to talk about is breaking news. I, 
I don't know, I just puzzle over that. Uh, I'm having a brain uh, chemistry moment with that. Uh, I'm realizing I've just noticed that through the years. <clears throat> oh, well, I'm also noticing there's tape up here and all kinds of things in here that I'm truly dialing in on. What can we know about God? So when you're presented with, okay, don't go behind the curtain, you can't know, and it's not Oz, it's not some little guy working the levers. But if there are purposes that are only ultimately known to God and what we see is just how it plays out, we don't get the full-on counsel of God. What do we know about God? And what Paul is answering all throughout Romans are these questions behind the questions in verse 19. Paul is saying all through Romans, look how good God has been to you. As a Gentile, you were the ultimate outsider with God. You were enslaved to your sin. When the Jews were handling the, the words of God through, through prophets and apostles, our ancestors, most of us, were running around naked in the wilds of Europe, illiterate. How did we get in on, on the Jewish Messiah? How, how did the God of Israel, how is it that he cut in and, and brought us out of our paganism and, and brought us into their party? How good is it that you get included by grace? And you look down at verse 27. He's got uh, these prophets, uh, what they've said. Verse 27, as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, that, that's an echo of Abraham, what God promised Abraham, only a remnant of them will be saved. And he'll repeat this over in chapter 11. We'll, we'll deal with it more then, but... If the Gentiles are, are the ultimate outsiders, the, the, the Jewish person is, as it were, the, sort of the ultimate unbeliever, considering their, their history with, with God in this particular context of Romans 9. Not every question that we're going to raise is going to be answered, but not every question should be. Some knowledge is too great for us. And, you know, have you ever thought, um, you know, I wish God would just tell me. And then you go back in the Old Testament and you read all those stories of when God just told them and they didn't do it. I mean, isn't that our default assumption? If God would just tell me, if he'd just write it out some way, then I would do it. Which assumes that if God told you something he wanted you to do specifically, you would automatically like it. But biblical history says plenty of times God approached people and said, this is what I want for you. <laughs> I don't really want to do that. See a lot of the prophets even. And other figures throughout the Old Testament. Philip Yancey once made the observation that in our day, the absence of a direct word from God, as it were, which way should I go, A or B, you know, that we feel that's problematic. But back in ancient Israel, God said, go A. And they said, nah, you know, I think B looks better. Go B. Well, I don't know. I'm rethinking A. And he told them. And what is that? teach us. Romans 15 will say everything written in the past is for our instruction. Because remember I said last week to you, Frederick Buechner, we're just like ancient Israel, only more so the Gentiles. Now you, you may be here this morning thinking, you know, Cole, you're talking about this like everybody struggles with this doctrine, but man, I, I love this doctrine. I, I can't get enough of it. You know, let's, let's glory in capital S sovereignty. We, we have a mix here in our, in our church. Um, if you are one who parks at the premium pump with this, 
You know, if, if Romans 9 is a favorite passage for you to really extol and, and glory in the, in the sovereign mercies of God, would you kindly consider for a moment uh, that you could have contributed to why others struggle with the doctrine if you seem doctrinaire with it? If you seem to be some sort of hero for sovereignty, you know? These people who want to defend God's honor, uh, which he's never called us to. See, personally, I love these doctrines. I, I love that the Lord does whatever he pleases. And that's because I love him and because I trust him. And trust is, is hard won. It doesn't come easily and automatically. Remember old Stephen Covey, um, Mormon, but had some great insights about, um, uh, you know, all truth is God's truth. And, and one of the things that Covey said is that, is that trust is the space where character and competency converge. In other words, if, if somebody has great character, but they don't know what they're doing, you're not going to trust them. And if they know what they're doing, but they're better, little better than a snake, you're not going to trust them. Trust is the place where character and competency converge. And this is what we get. The, the, the reason I love that the Lord does whatever he pleases is because I love him and I trust him and a position of trust in a God who's always worked within his counsels for the most good for the most people over time, I realize that it will necessarily require that some questions aren't going to be answered. But trust takes work. It doesn't come easy. But then the things that usually are the most worth having don't come easy. So I, I love these doctrines, but I have to say... Um, I don't love the hard-nosed culture that often springs up around these doctrines. Uh, I, I have found the hardest Christians to work with have been those who wear their reformedness as a badge of pride. And if you don't take to these things exactly the way they understand it, you're an idiot. That's high-mindedness. It's a caustic spirit masquerading as some sort of uh, concern for theological integrity. The doctrine of election, if it makes you a jerk, you're not doing it right. Some of the struggles we have with the doctrine, as I've counseled people through the years and I've encountered people who've said, oh, you know, that, that, that Calvin stuff, that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like that. And some of that I've found when you sit down and you begin to hear from them, well, what do you understand it to, to be? Tell me what you think election is and these related doctrines. And they, and they tell you and you say, well, well, have you thought about it from this perspective and this vantage point? And, and sometimes you realize that what's turned them off is not the doctrine, but the personalities of those who get intoxicated on sovereignty and become angry drunks. You know, I, I, they remind me of the guys in my fraternity in college who didn't just drink beer. They had to drink pure grain alcohol in front of the rest of us and show us that they could hold it. I mean, that kind of alcoholic exhibitionism has a theological parallel when people start breaking fellowship with other believers and mistreating them because they're not reformed enough, whatever that means. Again, I love these doctrines, which is why I will be particularly hard on those who make others hate these doctrines if they do because they're haughty in spirit and they have a critical spirit and they, they like making the case that God makes choices between people. Okay, Scripture teaches that. But, but if, if, if you make that case, it's almost like you like to hear the pottery breaking. You know, what are you doing for the body of Christ? The way God makes choices, works out his elective purposes, is in mercy. And, and while we don't know all the whys and the hows and the inner working of it all, 
what we can say for sure is that it's not like this. It is not like this. Let's say that I was throwing a party and I was sending out invites. And I decided not to invite you, personally you, think of yourself, even though I invited a lot of people around you. Is there a qualitative difference between my simply not inviting you? I just simply did not invite you. I left you out of the invitation list. You're not coming to my party. Is there a qualitative difference between that and th or sending you an invitation with a big red circle in it and a slash mark and a little note inside that says, ha, ha, see, you don't get to come to my party. I just want you to know what you're missing out on. That's rubbing your face in your exclusion, isn't it? The only point in that would be to convey malice toward you. Do you ever get that from God? Is that how it works? That's not how it works. That's not how God conducts his invitations. And we know it's not like that. That is to say it's, it's, not, it's not with equal ultimacy. Equal ultimacy is a, is a bad doctrine because it teaches that God choosing some for heaven means that he chooses some for hell. And while that may be logical, it's not biblical. People put themselves in hell in their own unbelief and their own rebellion, which we're all guilty of ongoing. Peter will talk about in his second letter how, how false teachers deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. It's the way he puts it. We're held responsible for our own belief. You say, explain that to me. When God is ultimately in charge of everything and he's hardening and having mercy and on whom he wills and... I can't explain it. Paul says right here in our passage that I can't. It's like diving into the ocean. You get to a certain depth, and the pressure becomes too great, and you start to feel it, and you've got to, you've got to resurface. You have to respect a tension, the tension between God sovereignly working for our belief, thank you, Lord, that you did, and our still being as human beings responsible to believe. It's a tension. And when you try to resolve tensions in Scripture, you go to one side or the other. And it's almost like you worked out your right arm and you never worked out your left. And you, you, would, you, you, would, you would look different uh, muscularly in that, in that way. There's a lot of people whose theology ends up being like that because they don't respect tension. They've got to resolve it in one way or another. Again, as I said earlier, and it bears repeating here, God is against everyone in their sin. You know what that means? He would be infinitely gracious if he had mercy on just one of us, much less the billions of us that he's redeeming over time all over the world. That he doesn't take everyone doesn't mean that he can't take anyone. And his elective purposes to pass over some conveys no animosity toward them. He doesn't send a canceled invitation and mock them. What the doctrine of election, as we have it here in chapter 9, is supposed to do is not stoke animosity in the hearts of unbelievers. You don't talk about this with unbelievers. And it's sure not to stoke pride in our hearts. It's to stoke praise and gratitude. In fact, somebody told me this morning, it was great just out there talking to folks as they came in, said, I noticed your passage. And he said, you know, the doctrine of election, what it gave me was better worship. And that is when, as a teacher, you go, yes, <laughs> that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to give you praise and gratitude in the hearts of we who believe because we know that ultimately it's credited to God. 
Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I know that's harsh. But the questions behind these questions are, is God truly good? Is God good to me? Verse 23 and following, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now, in Hosea's context, he's looking at Israel. But in the larger, wider revelation of God, Hosea is actually looking beyond Israel to us. And Isaiah 2, down in verse 29, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Cities doomed to destruction. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? You know what their sin was, right? Do you know what their sin was? You ever read Ezekiel 16? Behold, this, was, this is the prophet Ezekiel. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them as I saw fit. You read that and you go, well, I thought Sodom and Gomorrah was because, you know... Well, yeah, that was part of it. But look, do you know what we just read? We read the sins of every man, every woman. If that can happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, it can happen to any, anybody, anywhere. And that's, that's Isaiah's point. Those are our sins. Pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, don't aid the poor and needy. I'm guilty on all four counts. Haughty, did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. This is, this is why you couldn't even find a remnant of ten people in Sodom and Gomorrah for God to spare those two cities. A remnant of just ten people would have spared the place. But it was because of their everyman's sins, which they were full bore into. We're still doing this stuff. And if we're not doing it ourselves, we're approving those who do. Remember the end of Romans 1? That laundry list of terrible things. And then he says, not only do people who practice these things square up to the judgment of God, but, but those who approve those who do them. What is God supposed to do in the face of this? Well, it's, it, he's not supposed to do mercy. He's not supposed to do mercy. He's supposed to do judgment and wrath. Wrath never being a rage with God, but his considered hatred of what hurts us and spoils and vandalizes his good designs and intentions for human flourishing, which is shalom. God loves the world he made. We love the sin we made. What is God supposed to do? Not mercy, but that's what he does. He does mercy. I can't think of a better thing to tell you. In some shape, form, and fashion, this is what I tell you every week. You say, you know, I don't really like Romans 9 that much. Thanks for taking only two weeks in it. Okay, you're welcome. Others of you are, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send an email. You should take six weeks in Romans 9. You know, these are precious stuff. Okay, I get that too. But Romans 9 brings us back to a reality we want to deny due to our sinfulness. And that reality is that God is supposed to judge us, all of us. Jew and Gentile alike, and yet he is good to me and to you 
and hopefully to everyone that we care about and want there with us in his kingdom when it comes in power. And using hopefully in that sentence, as I just did, is in reference to everyone we care about and pray for and seek opportunities to keep the gospel for the hopefully is there because back up in verse 16 that we looked at last Sunday, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation, that is. Unanswered questions about God's intent and reach, what that is supposed to create in us is the space where trust begins to take root because it forces me to deal with the character of God and the competency of God. And trust is the space where those two things merge. Can I trust God to be good? Oh, look at what he's done for me. Look at how he reached out to me, though my ancestry, which is German and Irish and Turkish predominantly. I mean, what three very angry people groups jostle around in me all the time. And God brought my um, mother through uh, Turkish atheists to faith. Not Turkish Muslims, Turkish atheists, professors at the University of Constantinople. My great, 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 maybe grandfather. Great, great, father was a playwright who comes to Ellis Island and has my grandfather and divorces uh, uh, her and she marries another playwright who's Polish. And, and you look at your family history and, and you see, why did God have anything to do with us? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. There's a Christian home that was made well before me. And I've realized that if God didn't get me early in my life, what a mess of people's lives I would have made. What a selfish, I won't use that word, guy that I would have been. Paul is not shut down mode here like an irritated professor tired of class discussion. That's it, everybody just shut up. We're going to just look at capital S sovereignty for a few minutes. He's not doing it like that. What he's trying to move us toward is that space where the character and the competency of God to save, look at salvation history, what God is doing and still doing. Do you realize that the fact that there is a today, the very turn of the calendar every day, you know what that means from biblical history? God's still redeeming people. Do you realize that every day there is a day, God is bringing people to himself. That's what a day is for ultimately, for God to do the work of redeeming people, and he does it every day until that day comes when the author walks onto the stage and the play is over the curtain falls I think the uh, that day we pray for it to hasten but we we pray in the meantime that our days as we have them and use them that God we will see the outworking of the mercy of God in our lives and the lives of people that he's brought us close to let's pray to that end Lord, we look at this passage, it's a challenging passage, and, and there's things here that are people divide over and have different nuanced arguments about, and, and it's not that that isn't important. Uh, Lord, we, um, we've flown through in two weeks. It's, it's, it's buzzing the field in a lot of ways instead of really getting down and, and playing on it. But Lord, even so, I, I pray that we get the main point, and that is that we can trust your character and your competency to save and because what you've done for us and what you've promised to do and that every promise you make holds true, we don't have to worry and fear that something's not going to happen in the grand outworking of your good purposes. And I thank you that your purposes for us are good. You are doing good to us and all that you do is good. 
We thank you, Lord, for mercies to us. And we thank you for mercies yet to come to those in whom this uh, originally began. And we thank you, Lord, for, for the hope of glory that is seen in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who took the penalty for our sin upon himself was the ultimate sacrificial lamb, was everything that all that ritual and, and, and procedure and audiovisual was pointing to, one would come who would be a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And Lord, we pray you would open more eyes and hearts to him and that you would keep us focused on him because that is the point of learning doctrine, is to love Jesus more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us in this, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.